Well, I want to begin by saying Merry Christmas to you. And then I want to ask a question. Has anyone ever had a Christmas that did not live up to your expectations? When I was 12 years old, we had a Christmas like that. I grew up on a dairy farm, and according to good Pennsylvania Dutch Mennonite tradition, when my grandfather passed the farm on to my father, uh, they lived in the same house that we did, called the Dottie House. And I never knew life without my grandfather, but in the Christmas of 1963, my grandfather had a very serious heart attack. He was rushed to the hospital, and he never returned home. And as a result, all of the normal family Christmas gatherings that year were canceled. We never had a big family uh, Christmas dinner with my cousins. We never got to hang out and play games. In fact, uh, we didn't even put up a Christmas tree that year because my mom especially was impacted by the death of her father, which came so suddenly. It was also the first time that I experienced the death of a uh, family member close to me, and I remember that Christmas being hit with the reality and the finality of death. I still remember the message that uh, Pastor Montgomery spoke at, uh, at my grandfather's funeral. Pastor Montgomery was the father of Wayne Montgomery and the grandfather of Ian Montgomery, and he was our pastor in our church at Newton D. But it was also one of the most meaningful Christmases because for the first time in my life I really stopped to think about life and why Jesus came and the hope that he came to bring. Now it's also a reality that Christmas 2020 will not live up to most of our expectations. <laughs> it will not be a hallmark Christmas. My family has a long-standing tradition that two days after Christmas, from December 27th to December 31st, we go away. <laughs> uh, we're, we've all we've been very busy before Christmas, preparing for Christmas, Christmas Eve services, and, and then we just go away and we like to go up north, where hopefully there's some snow, and we spend four nights away in retreat, playing games, having Christmas dinner. We used to do it at a timeshare in Carriage Hills when there was just the seven of us, but then son-in-laws came and we ran out of space there, so we rented a cottage in Muskoka for a number of years, but then more grandchildren came and more son-in-laws, and there wasn't room there, so the last number of years we've been running our Stainer Lodge. And we've been going up and we've been spending four nights and we've been playing games and having a big Christmas dinner and opening gifts and just spending quality time with each other. And now there's uh, almost 23 and three quarters of us. <laughs> but this year we're not going to be doing that. Everything's different this year. And we're going to have to adapt to that. And so I have another question for you today. What do you think is the greatest Christmas carol that has ever been written? Maybe you want to just spend some time among you talking about that. What is the greatest Christmas carol to you? So just turn to the person beside you and ask them that question. And now I want to tell you what I think. 
I think the greatest Christmas carol that has ever been written isn't Silent Night, our joy to the world, our old little town of Bethlehem, even those are great carols. I think the greatest Christmas carol that has ever been written was written by a Jewish girl by the name of Mary. She was visiting her cousin near Bethlehem. She was from Nazareth, but she had traveled there to get away from the gossip of her small town. And as soon as Elizabeth, her cousin, saw her, she had this remarkable words of blessing that she pronounced upon her because God had revealed to Elizabeth what he had done, that Mary was expecting a child through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, and this child would be the Messiah. And then Mary responded by pouring forth this remarkable series of words that we have recorded in Luke chapter 1 that we call the Magnificat. And I want to tell you something about the Magnificat that you probably didn't know. In the 1980s, during a civil war in Guatemala, the government banned the Magnificat. It was illegal for anyone to recite Mary's song in public or even in church services. Do you know why they did that? They banned the Magnificat because they considered it to be subversive. Because it was thought that if people at the time, especially downtrodden people, especially hopeless people, people who were marginalized or oppressed, ever heard those words that God, of what God was up to, According to this illiterate teenage girl, it might incite hopeless people to want to take action. So those words of Mary were banned by the government in Guatemala. What were those words of Mary in Magnificat that caused the government in Guatemala to react the way they did? In Luke chapter 1, these are the words. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has taken notice of this lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy and he has done great things for me. He has shown mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and he has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with great things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. He has made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to his children forever. And that was the first Christmas carol ever composed. And when Mary sang her song, everyone knew who the king of Palestine was. According to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. And it was during the reign of King Herod. Who was this guy <laughs> who went by King Herod? He was also nicknamed Herod the Great because of 
some of the amazing accomplishments he had done during his lifetime. But when it says during the king uh, reign of Herod, this isn't just a calendar statement. It's a statement that Jesus was born in a very troubling time. Herod, it was actually a formal title that he had, king of the Jews. He was an incredibly ambitious guy. He was also a very complex guy. Racially, he was an Arab, an Edomite. Religiously, he kind of was half Jew. Culturally, he was Greek. And he spoke Greek. And politically, he always sided with the Romans. Because he got success and power from the Romans. You see, Herod had reigned for a long time, over 30 years. Initially, he politically aligned himself with Julius Caesar. <laughs> then when Julius Caesar was killed, he aligned himself with his successor, Mark Anthony. Then when Mark Anthony came to the end of himself at the hands of Caesar Augustus, he aligned himself with Caesar Augustus. How did he do that? He did it through a number of political alliances uh, and political, politi politically motivated marriages. During his lifetime, he had at least 10 wives. Some scholars think there was 12. <laughs> but he was suspicious of everyone. And the only one that he ever loved, according to Josephus, the Roman historian, that we get most of our information about Herod about, the only one he ever loved was a wife by the name of Miriam. But near the end of his life, Herod became uh, sick and he became incredibly paranoid. He had five children through this wife, Miriam, in seven years. But he became suspicious of Miriam uh, and his sons. And so he had Miriam executed near the end of his life, his favorite wife. And then he had his mother-in-law executed. And then two of the sons that he had with Miriam uh, became a little bit too ambitious for Herod. And so he had them executed as well. And one of his old barbers tried to stick up for his sons, and so he had him executed. Herod was a very suspicious guy and a very paranoid guy. Um, he did a lot of things to cause a lot of angst in people. When he was on his deathbed, he was in such agony and despair that according to Josephus, he actually tried to commit suicide five days before he really died. But a palace guard was there to stop him. But another one of his sons heard that Herod had prematurely died. And so he was under guard, under house arrest, and he paid the guard off. And when Herod heard about that, he had that son executed. Now, Herod wanted to be known for his magnificent building projects. So that's why he had the nickname Herod the Great. And Herod was, in his 35-year reign, an incredible builder. He was known for building a Roman city, Caesarea Marentina. I have a picture of that city that he built. It was right on the Mediterranean Sea, and it became the main seaport by which the Romans would come into Palestine. 
And notice the magnificence of that city in the picture that I have there for you. And he built a major harbor there so that the boats could come in safely and unload their produce. And the amazing thing about this harbor, it was the first time that cement was ever poured underwater. He had developed a way to do that. Herod also built another thing that he's very famous for. It was the magnificent temple in Jerusalem, which was one of the seven wonders of the world. And I have a picture there. You can Google it. It was absolutely incredible. And it took about over 30 years to build. However, Herod got into a lot of controversy over building that because he put a golden statue of an eagle there, which represented the might of Rome, and the Jews were so incensed by it, they went and took it down. And as a result, Herod rounded up all the ringleaders and had them killed. Many of them were burned alive. Herod also had, was famous for building two other things. One of them was the Masada that you've probably heard about along the Dead Sea. A huge palace fortress that was basically built to protect Herod if the Romans ever turned against him. The Masada is an amazing place because it had granaries and cisterns that could store food and water for 10 years, and it was built up so high that nobody was thought to have ever been able to penetrate it. And he had a palace there with Roman baths, and it was an incredible place. And then he had another place built called the Herodian just outside of Bethlehem. And I have a picture of that as well. Again, a huge fortress palace there. Beautiful gardens at the foot of it with a huge swimming pool. Herod just loved to build. But the problem is he built it on the backs of other people. He taxed them so greatly that the people... The Jewish people were absolutely crushed and lived in poverty. Have any of you noticed that in a lot of Jesus' stories, his parables, he talked about landowners. Somebody owns land and then goes away and they come back to check on their land and to check on their servants. There's a reason for that. That's exactly what was going on economically in Palestine at the time that Jesus was born. The poor people like Mary's family and Joseph lost their land and became hopeless in that economy because they were taxed so heavily that most of them went into such debt that they couldn't afford their land. And so Herod would seize their land and he would become the owner and they would pay tribute to him. Now, when Herod was dying, he was such a tyrant that he knew that people would be happy when he died. And so do you know what he did? He actually had 70 of the most elite citizens of Israel imprisoned, placed in the Hippodrome in Jericho. And then he gave his sister Salome instructions that on the day that he died, all 70 of those citizens had to be put to death because he wanted uh, the Jews to be in mourning on the day that he died. And that was the only way that would happen. That was Herod. He knew how the world worked. He watched them come and he watched them go. He watched them rise and he watched them fall. He knew who the players were and he knew how to maneuver and wait and outsmart and outfox and outintimidate anybody who opposed him. 
and then we read in Matthew chapter 2 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men came from the eastern lands and arrived in Jerusalem asking the question, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. And Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. <laughs> where is the one who was king of the Jews, the wise men asked? That was a political title. Herod's followers didn't get it after him. He got it. It cost them a lot of blood. And then these strangers come from the east and ask, where's the king of the Jews? And we can understand the next phrase. When Herod heard this, what was his reaction? He was greatly disturbed. He was the king of the Jews. How dare anybody else call themselves king of the Jews? And then we also understand the next phrase, in all Jerusalem with him. Because when Herod was disturbed, when Herod wasn't happy, ain't nobody happy. And meanwhile, Mary, this peasant girl from Nazareth, sings her song. What was her song? <laughs> in verse 51, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Who do you think that might be? He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Who's on the throne? He has sent the rich away empty-handed. Who's rich? You see, nobody's selling those kind of Hallmark cards when Jesus was born. Nobody is on the radio back in those days. Uh, there's no Josh Groban singing, he sent the rich away hungry, empty. But Mary said those words often enough that they got remembered. They got known, they got written down, and they were even put in a book. Be careful, Mary. You go around saying that kings are going to be dethroned because this little baby that's going to be born, and somebody's going to get upset. Somebody's going to get mad. In fact, that kind of talk can even get somebody crucified. You see, there's really only two people initially who really seemed to understand what was going on that first Christmas. Two people who understood how subversive this little life was going to be. One of them was the most powerful man in the country, Herod the Great. And the other was a penniless 14-year-old Jewish peasant girl. To one of them, the coming of Jesus was the foundation of all hope. There's an intriguing uh, line from the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, that says, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All the hopes and aspirations of Mary, all the fears and paranoia of Herod. To one, the coming of Jesus is the foundation of the very hope of the world. To the other, it is catastrophe to be feared and prevented at all costs. And so what did Herod do? <laughs> when the Magi didn't report back to him, he had all the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two slaughtered. That's the kind of guy Herod was. <sighs> and so, this is a, a, a very important thing in understanding the Christmas story. And then Mary takes and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to be circumcised and, and to be given a name. 
And who in the temple meets him but Simeon, the prophet? And Simeon takes the child. And what does Simeon do? Well, look at verse 29 of Luke 2. He holds the child up and he pronounces a blessing over the child. And he says, Sovereign Lord, now that your servant die in peace as you've promised, for I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations and he is the glory of your people Israel. And it says Jesus' parents were amazed of what was being said about him. And then Simeon turns away from the baby and he turns away from Joseph and he says these words to Mary. And he says, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and Mary, a sword will pierce your very soul. What a statement. Who makes that kind of statement? Isn't that an amazing thing that uh, he said? A sword will pierce your soul. What kind of a blessing is that? What do you think he got? Uh, and then Jesus goes and, and Jesus begins his ministry. And it's a radical ministry. What does Jesus say during that ministry? He goes into Nazareth, his hometown. We read it about it in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He goes into the synagogue. He reads from Isaiah. And then he, he describes why God has sent him. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and that the blind will see and that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has now come. And then he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down and all the eyes in the synagogue were upon him. And then he began to speak to them and said, the scripture that you've just heard has been revealed this very day. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Mary said in the Magnificat? Doesn't that sound exactly what Simeon had prophesied in the temple? He will release captives. The oppressed will be set free. The blind will see. Who is this man? What is his mission? And then we read in the Sermon on the Mount... The essence of his teaching. He gathers the people together on a mountainside. And what does he say? God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of God is theirs. God blesses those who mourn. For they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble. They will inherit the earth. God blesses those who what? Hunger and thirst for right justice. For they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those who are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. 
What? Do you notice the reversal? It's not the rich and necessarily the powerful. And then there's another very interesting time where, where children are brought to Jesus. And, and Jesus responds in, a, in Mark chapter 10, verse 13. One day, parents brought their children to Jesus so they could touch them and bless them. <laughs> what did the disciples do? They scolded the parents. Jesus doesn't have time for that. And what does Jesus say? Let the children come to me. For the kingdom of God belongs to anyone like that. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child, they'll never enter it. And then he took the children in his arms and he blessed them. And he placed his hands upon them. And he blessed them. What is Jesus doing? Notice the reversal here. This isn't mechanical teaching. We have to be clear on this. This does not mean that all the under-resourced people are going to heaven and all the over-resourced people are going to hell. That's not what he's saying. But it does mean that God has no intention of tolerating the injustice in in the greed of this world on a permanent basis. It does mean that when people are selfish and violent, when rich people watch poor people go hungry and do nothing about it, when the powerful push around those who are weak because they can get away with it, when folks who have stuff turn a blind eye and become apathetic to those who don't, it makes God angry. And now in Christmas, in Jesus, God has started to do something about it. God has started to set things right. This is not a Norman Rockwell holiday. It's not. And one other thing that is part that nobody seemed to understand. Jesus has now begun a great reversal. He has begun to set things right. He will not overthrow Herod by using Herod's methods. He won't out-Herod Herod. He will out-love Herod. Jesus will defeat Herod's capacity to hate by his greater capacity to suffer. Jesus is saying, put it on me. All the injustice, all the violence, all the grieving. Put it on me. He will defeat Herod's pride by his infinitely greater humility. He will inherit or defeat Herod's cruelty and mine by his infinitely greater love. This is Jesus. This is the one who comes to be born and that we now worship. He will humble himself. He'll be born in a stable. He'll live in poverty. You see, it's no coincidence. It's not a fluke that he came this way. He himself incarnated flesh. And lived out the great reversal. He will work with his hands. He will be an itinerant rabbi with no place to lay his head. He will teach people wherever he goes. People who will listen. He will be accused unfairly. He will be tried corruptly. He will be mocked mercilessly. He will be executed excruciatingly. 
He will overcome the power, the dominion, the lostness of sin through his suffering on a cross for you and me, for rich and poor, for Herod. If only Herod would get down on his knees and say yes. I want to read part of Mary's Magnificat one more time, and I want to personalize it so that we can understand it a little bit more. In Luke 1, 46, Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my soul rejoices in God my Savior. But let me personalize it. My mighty arm has done tremendous things. I have brought down princes from their thrones, and I have exalted the humble. I have filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. I have helped my servant Israel. Remembered to be merciful. That's what Mary's all about. That's what her song's all about. It's not Mary who did it. It's Mary's son. Dallas Willard has a phrase for this. He calls it the great reversal. What does it mean to praise God? That's what the Magnificat is all about. Mary is giving praise to God because God is coming to do something that is incredibly significant. Dallas Willard has a phrase of what it means to glorify God, and I love it. It's this. To glorify God means to live in such a way that when people look at your life, they say, what a good God God must be to think up something like you. What a good God God must be to think up somebody like you. That's what it means to glorify God. To live in such a way that we bring glory to him. And that's what the New Testament church was all about. Living in such a way that glory came to God. That's why we're here. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you're the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that, what's the phrase? Everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Doesn't that sound like the Magnificat? To give praise to God. All my soul glorifies God. And we do that by being active in our world. By blessing people in El Salvador. By building homes. By partnering with a church in Guatemala. And, and blessing that church so that they can be a blessing to others. By doing what we're doing through our Christmas outreach this year. By helping centers like <laughs> out of the cold are those who give counseling to, to people in Niagara who need it we glorify God we participate in the great reversal and that's what the early church was all about in Acts chapter 2 it says the believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And there was a deep sense of awe that came over them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And the people met 
together in one place and shared everything they had. And they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And they worshiped together in the temple every day and they met in people's homes and they shared meals with great joy and generosity and all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You see, when we live out God's principles, that's what happens. And yeah, I know we're in challenging times. And I know that Christmas is going to be different this year. But we still have this incredible opportunity to live out God's truth. To give praise to him. Yes, can the weary world still rejoice? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus has come. Because the great reversal has come. God is going to bless those who are humble in heart. That's why Paul writes what he does in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He said, we must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something that he would cling to. Rather, he gave up all his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave. And he was born as one of us, a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus lived out the great reversal. He didn't cling on to what God had given him in heaven, but he became one of us and became obedient to death. And what has God done as a result? I love this. Verse 9, God has elevated him to the place of highest honor. He's given him the name above every other name that at the very name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is another way of saying the magnificent. How can we praise God? by having the same attitude of Jesus and serving our world. Lord God, thank you for coming. Thank you for the great reversal. Help us to understand what Christmas is really all about. It's not about us. It's about you coming to this world and giving us a reason to live. And for that, we thank you. In Jesus, I pray. Amen.